to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome back to Natural MD Radio. We are facing what continues to be a global cesarean section crisis. As with so many things, those who are most economically underserved are receiving too little of what they need, and those in the most resource-rich countries are being oversold. The use of cesarean sections and the overuse, particularly in the U.S., is not new. This issue has been obvious since the 1980s. Ironically, at that time, the C-section rate was considered to be too high when it was escalating to 20%. But now that would almost be a dream goal compared to the over 30% average we have nationally. Though, according to the World Health Organization, the ideal is really between 10 and 15%, but no more than 19% for maximum outcome benefits. But if that wasn't already enough of a crisis, cesarean section births almost doubled between 2000 and 2015 globally in high-income settings, with countries like Brazil having an over 60% C-section rate, while women in low-income countries often don't have access to this method of birth at all, even when it's needed for saving a woman's life. The wide variations reported between regions, within countries, and even within counties in a country, as we see widely happening in the U.S. and other places, tells us that something is very wrong. Because women's ability to give birth is not greatly dependent on geography and between groups of women, and that confirms that cesarean section use is not being evidence-based. Finally, the conversation is starting to go mainstream, as it needs to for change to happen. And my guest today has been a force in bringing this conversation to the forefront. Marlene Temmerman has been one of the voices behind bringing the international medical community's attention to both the overuse and the under-access to cesarean section and the impact on women's safety, notably recently as the senior author on a series of focus articles in the Lancet Medical Journal in October of this year, 2018. Professor Dr. Marlene Temmerman is an obstetrician-gynecologist and so much more. She's a well-recognized and highly respected global leader in women's, children's, and adolescent health. She brings academic, technical, political, and leadership skills to the table, as well as diplomacy, advocacy, fundraising, training, and clinical expertise. She has a strong record of working with governments, multilateral organizations, academia, professional bodies, development agencies, private sector, consultancy agencies, civil society, non-governmental agencies, faith-based organizations in a global and changing world. She's served as the director of the Department of Reproductive Health and Research for the WHO in Geneva, as an elected senator to the Belgian parliament where she was a member commission on social affairs, chair commission on foreign affairs and defense. And in that capacity, she was a member of the European parliamentary forum and chair of the HIV-AIDS Advisory Group of the Interparliamentary Union. She's founding director of the International Center of Reproductive Health at Ghent University, Belgium with offices in Kenya and Mozambique, and a member of large global organizations doing academic work and universities 
worldwide. She's published over 500 peer-reviewed publications and books and has over 50 PhD students in Western as well as Eastern European, African, Latin American, and Middle Eastern and Asian countries. Since 2015, Dr. Temmerman has been chair of the Department of OB-GYN and director of the Center of Excellence in Women and Child Health at Aga Khan University in East Africa, Nairobi, Kenya. She has numerous awards to her name, including a Lifetime Achievement Award given in London for the British Medical Journal, Prize of Liberal Humanism from the Belgian Humanist Liberal Society for her commitment to women's rights, health, and emancipation, and the Marie Popelin Award for Women's Rights established by the National Women's Council in Belgium. Her diverse skills in academics, science, management, and politics, in conjunction with her work in the area of women, children, and adolescents' health, has led the Lancet to call her a polymath in reproductive health, and her advocacy effort for women's health and rights inspired the rock band U2 during a concert in Brussels to include her in the list of inspiring women in their performance. Marlene, thank you so much for joining me today in all that you do, making time for my little podcast. I'm so grateful. My pleasure, Aviva. Happy to talk to you about one of my passions. <laughs> and I didn't so mention. <laughs> oh yes, please. And I didn't mention that you're a mother as well. So I'm sorry. Yes, Absolutely, it's... that's my major achievement. <laughs> yes, I know the feeling. <laughs> Thanks, Aviva. So that's why we call the uh, Lancet series. The title is Optimizing Cesarean Section Rates. Because on the one hand, as you clearly said, we have areas, and it's not only rich or poor countries. I live and work in Kenya, and in some of our counties, we have less than 1% of women who have a cesarean section, which is clearly an indicator of poverty and lack of access to good quality care. So there we have women, children dying because of lack of access to quality care and interventions amongst other cesarean sections. Having said that, in the same country, and it's not only in Kenya, it's globally, you see in some parts that we really have a kind of 50, 60 percent in some hospitals, some regions. So we see overuse and underuse. And that's why we are calling in this Lancet series that is actually consisting of three papers, one looking at differences between countries, in countries, trends in time. Another one looking at the so what. Is it harmful to have too many cesarean sections in a population? And then the third paper is rather focusing on what can we do about it to optimize cesarean section rates. So maybe I deep dive a little bit in how come that we have such an increase in cesarean sections in many parts of the world, leading to actually overuse. Absolutely. And I think what you say is so critically important. I was just speaking with a woman who is a midwife in Washington, D.C., clearly a region that has a tremendous amount of wealth. And yet the hospital that has consistently served largely women of color, largely at the lower end of the income brackets in D.C. has closed. So we have now an entire population in our capital city that's entirely underserved and having to travel over an hour sometimes to even get access to care. So, you know, thank you for emphasizing that it's not just countries, but it's, it's an income disparity that's happening and a distribution of health that's happening everywhere. Globally. Right? Yes. You know, why do we have this increase? I think, number one, 
is that cesarean section has become a safe operation, right? Years ago, when we didn't have antibiotics or when it was a problem of having good anesthesia or access to blood transfusion and so on, there were a lot of serious complications with cesarean section. So it was really done only when absolutely necessary. Over the years, we have seen evolutions in technologies increasing, contributing to safety of cesarean section, which is great, which is good, and we should embrace this. Having said that, it's not because something is safe that you should use it without indication because it remains a major surgical intervention. So why do we have this increase? Because of, as I said, it has become more safe. And also the perception amongst healthcare providers and amongst women, it's kind of, oh, it's a very simple intervention that is easier in some cases than a normal delivery. So let's start with the healthcare providers. For a gynecologist, actually, it is sometimes easier to do a cesarean section than to support a woman in a normal birth process because you can organize your life. You have two or three cesarean sections a day and, you know, less night work and you can organize your clinical work, your outpatient clinics without having to rush to labor work and the unpredictable of normal labor and delivery. So for a gynecologist, for the logistics of your life, and in many, many countries and settings, a financial incentive because a C-section is usually um, at a higher cost or a, a better fee for the provider than a normal delivery. So that is number one. Number two is that, I'm a gynecologist, we are in many settings trained to do something. We want interventions. We want an active management. And this is not always the best attitude in childbirth and labor, where you have midwives who are more trained to support women and they are technically very well trained. So in those settings where midwives are leading, and it's not about who is the best provider, midwife, or a doctor or a gynecologist, I think we all have a role to play. And actually, I'm always saying every woman, every pregnant woman needs a midwife, and mm -hmm. some also need a doctor. Because a midwife is trained to provide normal care, but when something goes wrong, or when there is a complication, we need our fraternity, the medical doctors, the OBGYNs, who are there readily available to provide this emergency care when it is needed. So all of us are there and all of us have a role to play but the Guyanese society, and that's why I'm so happy that we work together with the International Confederation of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, with the midwives and with the women agencies to reflect about optimizing the cesarean section. So again, who is contributing actually to the increase cesarean section? Basically, it's the gynecologists who hold the knife. So we are the primary responsible. But on the other hand, you also have increasingly a women agency who is asking for cesarean section. And women come to my clinic, sometimes they say, look, I have the right to decide how I will deliver my baby. And it's considered as, you know, it's uh, better for me. Many women here in this part of the world, they are afraid of pain because we don't have routinely available epidural anesthesia or good 
strong pain killing. So fear of pain is one of the motives for women to ask for a cesarean section. There is also a lot of misconception about it. It's better to have a cesarean section for the health of the woman and the baby. This is not correct. Then there is also the misconception that once a cesarean, always a cesarean. And this is also something we have to push back. It is true that once you had a cesarean section, you always have a scar. But most of the women deliver just normally, depending, of course, what the reason is for the, the indication for the cesarean section. So it's not because you had a cesarean section that your next delivery again should be a cesarean section. Women are afraid of, they are less in society as opposed to like here in Kenya in rural societies. Pregnancy and delivery is part of daily life because you see around you pregnant women and it's kind of, but if you go and live alone in cities, they don't see it in their daily life. They have become more afraid of normal processes such as pregnancy and delivery. Yes, everything normal has been medicalized. And when you don't see it as part of your daily experience as normal, you don't internalize, oh, I can do this. My mother did this. My sister does this. You just internalize that it's normal. Whereas here, I know in the U.S., it's like every time you turn on a television show or a movie where there's a birth, not every time, but it's often some medical crisis and it gives this impression that birth is so dangerous. Absolutely. And that's what sometimes media are doing, although I think also media provide information on normal delivery. But we should really stop medicalizing normal processes. When I was in training years ago in the Netherlands, our chief of staff, he was saying, the best thing for doctors to learn and for gynecology is keep your hands and your pockets yes. on your back <laughs> and only intervene, like with induction of labor, episiotomy, uh, medicalization, when you can do better than nature. Always ask yourself, is this now better than nature? Try not to medicalize normal physiological processes. And I think that's what we should do. But now young doctors, and that's another reason why we have more cesarean sections, and I come back to this as well. And the young doctors, they see their colleagues and their mentors and their seniors doing all the cesarean section, and that's how they are trained. So they can, I'm exaggerating now, but at the end of the training, they are good in catching a baby or doing a cesarean section. But the art of delivery, the medical assistant deliveries, even a breech position, if you take care, there is no reason to automatically do a cesarean section because the baby is upside down. You know, you have to know when you are doing a normal delivery, when in a breech position, when you are doing a cesarean. But there is no reason to do a cesarean section for all breech deliveries. Having said that, the young gynecologists, they hardly see any breech deliveries, so they cannot acquire the skills anymore. And that's what's a pity that it looks like if we don't stop, think about it, reflect on the pros and the cons, that we will go in the direction of everyone cesarean section. And what is also contributing is the liability. And if something goes wrong in a normal delivery, you know, you have a complication and there is a serious event or a maternal mortality or a child that doesn't survive, then the chance is higher for a gynecologist to stand in court 
and to be asked, why didn't you do a cesarean section? On the other hand, if you do a cesarean section and the woman is bleeding and there is a complication leading to a, an adverse outcome, you don't get that question, why didn't you do a normal delivery? Because it looks like you have done the best thing in life you could. You have done a medical technical intervention, a cesarean section. And we should stop that kind of legal liability because then it makes obstetrics as one of the most dangerous jobs <laughs> You know, when I, was, when I was at Yale doing my OB training, and, you know, I have to give Yale some credit. They have opened a very progressive birthing center now, which actually has a 20% C-section rate. They've gotten their main hospital is over 30%, but they didn't have the birthing center when I was there. When I was training on the main floor, I remember being told the only cesarean you get sued for is the one you didn't do. And that was sort of like the motto. And the OBs knew that when they graduated from their training, that they were likely to be sued three times in the course of their practice. So it almost just became default. And then interestingly, to the point that you were saying about the young OBs not being trained in natural birth, there was so much politics. I remember when I was interviewing for my OB-GYN residency, I went to one of the major Boston teaching hospitals for my interview, and their big sell to the incoming potential class was, we don't have midwives, so don't worry, you'll all get plenty of cesareans to practice. <laughs> that was really? when I, mm -hmm, I actually decided to go into family medicine after that because the C-section rate in the U.S. and the approach to birth is much more akin to midwives than it is for OB. But those were some of the kinds of things that I was actually told in my training. Can you imagine? So that brings us to the other, you know, is it harmful for women and babies to have cesarean section? And our paper in The Lancet also shows very clearly, and I think we all know, that, of course, it's still a major surgery, and you have complications, serious or less. But if you ask women, now I'm asking women who had both, normal delivery and a C-section, if you have a chance for your third choice for your next pregnancy, most of them, they say, I want a normal delivery. Because also the postpartum, postnatal uh, recovery is so much better than with a normal delivery. Yeah, I hear that all uh, the time too. Yeah, yep. that is absolutely the case. So it is, in addition, once you do a cesarean section for the first one, you have a kind of increased risk for placental abnormalities, for placental insertion in the scar that goes up with every pregnancy. So you increase your risk of complications for your next pregnancy. So the key is to avoid the first cesarean section. So to do it only when it's really, really needed. And also for the baby. So for the mom, there are complications. But also for the baby, there is more and more evidence that children born with an elective uh, cesarean section that is often needed to save the life of the mom and the baby. So then there is no discussion. But if you have many, many babies born and they have more risk for asthma, obesity, and there are more kind of evidence coming out. In addition, when you do it in this settings here, we don't always know the gestational age for sure. So you are having an increased number of babies born prematurely because of, while well, doing a section of 36 or 37 weeks, that was really not indicated. 
So there are plenty of reasons to review this. And that's why I'm happy with this call that we launched together with FIGO, ICM, and the Women Deliver at the end of the FIGO meeting in Brazil. Because we also looked at, do we have evidence of interventions that show that it's really possible to reduce this very high rate? And there are. There is a tool developed by Mr. colleague called Mr. Robson, who is looking at what is really needed and what indications do we really need to do a cesarean section? Where is it not needed and where is it debatable? So if you discuss with your colleagues this tool as an instrument, there is evidence to show that you can reduce safely your C-section rate. Also by organizing, by reducing the financial incentives. In Belgium, a C-section for a gynecologist or a normal delivery It's the same fee. So if you take away the financial incentives, if you give good information to the community, to the women, if you organize yourself as a group, a team of gynecologists, where in the hospital at every time of the day, there is a capacity to do a cesarean section if needed, can do it. And a good example is China. Years ago, we looked at the prevalence rate of cesarean section some four or five years ago, China was quite high. We published in the reports, and the Chinese government was a little bit challenged and concerned because they were named as one of the highest. countries with a very high, <laughs> not the highest, but high. Yeah. And they called their uh, troops together, and their ministries, and their, you know, and they took on midwives, contrary to what you said in, in Boston. So they gave midwives a role in the pregnancy and delivery care, they had some other guidelines and, you know, intervention. And and they really showed dramatic reductions of their C-section rates in in large parts of China. And there are other examples as well. Portugal did very well nationally. So there are a number of interventions that we are describing in this third paper that has been led by my colleague from WHO, looking at what works and what doesn't work. The series got a lot of coverage, which is good, but I'm happy to talk to you now because it should not just be Lancet papers on a lounge and coverage and then as usual. So we are now going to call up all these different agencies who are involved in women's health care, the women agency themselves. One of the media, and the media is very important, in in that coverage that we got globally, there were two journalists from Kenya, and one wrote a paper with the title, To Push, To Push. And the next day, another one reacted, and Too Poor, To Choose. Yes, the Too Posh, To Push was, I think, an expression that was originally used to describe women, I think, in Brazil, because there was a strong movement some years back where the C-section rate, I think at some point in Brazil, was actually edging toward 90%. And that was what doctors were saying. The women were too posh to push. Yeah. And under the, you know, too posh to push, keep your honeymoon vagina and all this information that I think that is going back to normal a little bit. It was very high in the debate some years ago, but now you see kind of a little bit back to normal from that end. Mm. But the addition of two port to yes. is also very correct. I mean, very much a reality. Because then that's when you lose. I think in my life I have done, maybe I didn't count them all, but 
like 18,000 deliveries. Wow. I don't know the exact, I think there are more, but the ones that I counted are the 72 women who died mm. while they were in my care because they arrived too late because they had cesarean sections and could not, with a scar, access labor was timely, or some of them because of uh, septic abortions. But complications due to cesarean sections in the next pregnancy are a reality. Yes, I saw this when I worked in Haiti as well. It took about an hour to get set up for a C-section. It usually took several hours for a woman to walk to the hospital, often already with rupture of membranes. But if she'd had three or four previous C-sections and had an incredibly thin uterus, then by the time she got to the hospital and still an hour to set up it, you just lose vital time that could save a woman's life. It's incredibly tragic. Absolutely. How did you, as a gynecologist obstetrician, get and I'm going to use the word with all respect, radicalized. You know, in the U.S., it's almost impossible now to find an OB who's willing to support a woman with a breech delivery, even if the baby's in a great position, even if she's not a first-time mom. It's very difficult to have a truly healthy, normal birth without intervention in the hospital and to have this conversation with many OBs, for me as a doctor, I'm able to have the conversation usually with some level of mutual respect and intelligence, but a lot of midwives have a hard time having that conversation with OBs in their community. How did you go from being an OB who was trained just like any other OB gynecologist to having these views? Well, because as I said, I was trained in Belgium as a medical student. And at that time, gynecology there and obstetrics was quite interventionalist. How do you say it? So we, a high rate of induction of labor, high rate of episiotomy and cesareans and vacuum and kind of a very active medicalized approach. And I was sometimes shocked, you know, why can't we just wait a little bit more and give the woman a choice on how she wants to deliver and when. And so then I worked for a couple of years in the Netherlands where it was exactly the same. We are neighboring countries, but there was this Professor Klosterman who had oh, really... Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's so famous. <laughs> yeah, famous Professor Klosterman after the war. He was one of the, not the only voice, but one of the strong voices in Europe calling for a role for midwives, calling for non-medicalizing normal processes such as birth and and delivery and menopause and whatever. I felt so relieved when I was working in these conditions as an OBGYN where we had the normal deliveries, the normal pregnancies, deliveries, where it was really midwifery shared care. They were leading the normal low-risk pregnancies, but we as OBGYNs, we were involved, and if there was time for a consultation. so And then I went to work in several African countries and seeing how it could be if you really have a good system that allows the midwives to take care of the normal pregnancies in close collaboration with OBGYN, but in really task sharing, you can have a very good obstetrical outcome, very healthy moms, very healthy babies, without all these interventions that are introduced by doctors. And is this what drove you to go into politics? 
amongst others, yeah, I own though. <laughs> I mean, in many other things. And to politics was more about inequity, inequality, lack of solidarity, and in general, not only in OBGYN, but mm-hmm. in health systems. And the huge differences we have in wealth and poverty in some parts of the world, but also within our own rich countries. That drove me actually to do medicine. It drove me to do uh, OBGYN and to also become a kind of champion or advocate for women's rights. Because throughout my career, I have seen everywhere in the world that if you are wealthy and you know, you're, of course, you are more verbal, you know what you want, but also you get much more access. Many years ago, when family planning was an issue, when abortion was still illegal in Belgium, then if you are the wife of a very senior person, you would get your family planning, you would get your abortion. If you were a poor woman, well, there was nothing you could do. Or, you know, try to find somebody in unsafe conditions to help you. So this inequality and this hypocrisy has always been there. And for me, it was really a driver to go into politics and to make sure that these items remain high on the agenda. So what we did in the time I was in politics, I had two terms as a senator in Belgian politics, you know, trying to put with other colleagues these topics high on the agenda. Development aid, women's health, FGM maternal mortality. We organize sessions every year around Mother Day. We also organize all kinds of activities called Mother Night to put those women on the agenda who are dying. Still today, 800 women every day die because of pregnancy, because of trying to give life. So, I mean, there is global issues, there are local issues. And that was, for me, really the driver to go into politics and then later to go to WHO and to work with also other organizations because you have to work in partnerships. You cannot do it alone. So we live now in the area of the sustainable development goals. And goal number 17 is about partnerships. And that's what I have learned working in politics, in the local politics and the global politics. I've been my life in academics and in clinical work and in working in developing countries. And you do research, and I published a lot. And from that point of view, you can hope that your publications and your work can change the world. And maybe it does a little bit. But if you don't reach out to policymakers, to politicians, you know, they don't read the Lancet. They don't have to read the Lancet. We as a research community, we have to knock at their doors and make sure that they are part of that global village. There is a very nice verb saying, it takes two to make a child, but it takes a village to raise a child. And I think we are all part of that global village. So we don't do that alone, but you know, thinking, if we want really to change, who do we need? And that's why I took the initiative to talk to the Lancet and to ask them to, you know, to work, to allow me to commission me to get colleagues around the table and we worked with like a hundred colleagues from all over the world to do this work and to come up with this series. But we did it together with the professional bodies, FIGO, with the midwives, with the women agencies, with also the politicians. And I think that's the only way to change things. At the personal, at the individual level, 
at least for women in the U.S., we have a really complicated situation right now for women giving birth in that amongst women themselves, there's a lot of confusion over whether they need a C-section, when they need a C-section, when they don't. And often what happens is when women have had a C-section and they've been told it's necessary, and then they're hearing from people like me, maybe it wasn't so necessary. Of course, we never judge, we never point fingers, and we can't second guess what happened in every individual woman's situation. But there can be a tremendous defensiveness that happens. And also women who want to avoid a C-section, there can be a lot of polarization. And many women in the U.S. either feel judged for having had a C-section that maybe they didn't need, or conversely, women who have chosen to have a C-section or needed to have one have actually been shunned and judged by more alternative mommy groups. So I've had women who have come to me <laughs> crying, saying they were asked to leave an online group because they had a C-section, whatever the reason, necessary, unnecessary. And then on top of it, we have a complicated situation where when you're in labor, as you know, as a mother and someone who's attended tens of thousands of births now, it's very hard to know in that moment, you will do anything to protect your baby. And you're told your baby's in distress, you need a C-section, and you're having contractions. It's almost impossible to hit the pause button and say, well, do I really need the C-section? And let me calculate this right now. So for the women who are pregnant or planning to get pregnant and are terrified about having an unnecessary C-section, and want, what are some of the things that women themselves, you feel, can do to really make a difference for themselves? That's a very good question. I will start with my own personal story. I had a lot of miscarriages and, and gynae problems. And um, finally, did IVF. So when I moved to Kenya to work there, I was 32, I think, yeah. And I was pregnant, went to a gynecologist in Kenya at 20 weeks. And he assessed me and then he said, okay, when are we going to do the C-section? Take your agenda, we plan. I said, why would you do a C-section? He looked at me, why not? This is now 30 years ago. Huh? So things have only... Yeah. <laughs> so he said, why not? It's your first baby and you are 20 and it's a golden baby and every baby is a golden baby and it's this and this so i thought well you know i cannot deliver in this condition because once i come in labor pain and it will go a bit slowly and so on i'm just a patient as any other one so i went to another doctor and again same story and then i went to a third one same story and finally i ended up flying back to Belgium and having a normal delivery mm -hmm. um, to the joy of my family and so on. But I know how difficult it is. And on the other hand, also, the title to push to push has really made a lot of women very sad because they had a C-section because they wanted it or because it was needed. And now they are looked at, you know, ah, you are one of those. Exactly. And it's those. so not true. And it's not true. So we should avoid this kind of things. Now, what can we do as women agencies? I think we should never be judgmental. We should, on the contrary, have groups. And now we can have a lot of groups who are talking about what are the facts and the figures, what is correct information. And my example that I gave already before, if you have a scar, can you go for a normal delivery? There is plenty of evidence. 
women groups maybe and professionals should engage and should work hard to provide the evidence for the women who want to know more, who have specific questions. How we want to do it, it would be too complicated to discuss now, but we should make sure that the information is there. And then to the individual woman, what I would advise, and of course, you know the situation in the U.S. better than I do, but what I advise women here and also in Europe, when you plan a pregnancy, you know, to choose a doctor or a hospital that you ask or you read on their website, they should have their policies and they should have their cesarean section rates. And maybe they have a high cesarean section rate because they are a referral hospital. But even referral hospitals don't have 60%, right? So, I mean, you can look at the facts and the figures of a hospital, make your choice, but also ask the hospital or the department or the team, what is your philosophy in this? What is your policy in bridge deliveries? What is your policy with repeat cesareans, primary cesareans? So maybe you have to look around a little bit till you find that group. And as professionals, I think we should give very clear information where we work about policies. And you give already a good example, the difference between, where was it, Boston and then the other place? Yeah, at Yale. Mm-hmm. So there is a big difference between the policy, I think, in Yale and in Boston. Yeah, and even between Yale at the birthing center, they have a 14% disparity. And the big difference is that the birthing center, the Vidone Birthing Center, has chosen to establish intentionally a midwifery model of care. And so that's the emphasis is the midwifery model of care rather than the obstetric model of care, which really is intervention-based. Well, yeah, yes and no. It's all obstetrics midwives and yeah, but I know what you mean as doctors or midwives. Well, it's really that difference in philosophy, which is I think the midwife model of care is predicated on a woman's body knows how to do this. So let's establish the environment that facilitates that and only shift out of that when a medical intervention is needed. Whereas to some extent, the obstetrics model, at least here in the US, is predicated on birth is a disaster waiting to happen. And so let's control and manage those potential disasters as much as possible. Yeah. What we try to do in Belgium, quite good is kind of the, we call it home delivery in the hospital, Mm -hmm. something like that, where you really have cozy settings, but the management was done together with midwives and doctors. And there was a task sharing. You can have all kinds of models. Some of them you have like here in this place, you have your birthing center. And if there is a problem, you go to another center. Or what we had, we had part like the left side of the the corridor was the low risks. And then when there was a problem, immediately they crossed the corridor and they were in a theater. I mean, it's a philosophy that is important. It's interesting. Um, Um, Neil Shaw. I don't know if you know his work. He's at the Ariadne Center in Boston, and he's going to be doing a lot of work here in the U.S. to reduce unnecessary cesareans. And he's even looking at the architecture of birthing suites in U.S. hospitals, and they've done studies looking at your distance from the nurse's station and your distance from the OR 
and how that increases or decreases your likelihood. So even the physical setup of a birthing environment can make a difference in your outcome. My philosophy is it should not be midwifery or doctors oriented. It should really be women and or family oriented. Mm. So that this should be the focal point and we should work around that. For the low risk pregnancies like we had in Belgium, they could bring whoever they want as a companion. They could bring their own music, their tea, their you know, they had a lot of flexibilities as far as they were safe. <laughs> they could walk around and so on. So the midwives observed them. But just like five meters from that, there was the theater and the interventions where the gynecologists were taking the lead. And that was so reassuring for patients that they had a home, cozy environment, but they knew that behind the curtains, there was all the technology that could help them immediately if something goes wrong. Now, you are a significant academic researcher. And... Increasingly, over the past couple of decades, medicine has moved toward an evidence base. Everything we do is supposed to be evidence-based, and so based on the best available research that we have. And yet, in obstetrics, there is a clear disconnect between evidence and clinical practice. So, for example, we know that the Friedman curve is not accurate. We know that saying a woman is in active labor at three centimeters and should dilate at XYZ centimeters an hour, and if not, there should be an intervention, leads to overuse of intervention. We know that women ambulating, walking around, moving during labor is much healthier for women. We even know that eating during labor is not necessarily going to increase a woman's risk of asphyxiation if she has a C-section. Yet, what is happening clinically, at least here in the U.S., and I'm sure other places as well, is that the evidence is actually not being practiced. And what seems to be happening is a much more litigation-based model. Why is that gap there? And what do you feel we can do to shift this litigation-based model that's causing women to be essentially held captive in bed with a monitor so that we have proof that the baby wasn't in distress? I mean, there's so much politics happening. How do we break that? It's maybe more difficult in the U.S. even than in other countries because of this litigation model. I think because the default is pregnancy and a delivery are dangerous situations and you have to do everything you can to avoid, which is your legal system, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, where a lawyer can wait outside of the hospital and ask you, is everything okay? And if not, you can just go to court or to open a file with claims, which is not the case in Europe, for example. There it's much more difficult to go to court or to claim. All the examples that you give, like ambulatory, walking around during delivery and not permanent CTG and intake of food, all this is, in many settings in Europe, it's just reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a big difference. And I think probably I didn't do the study there, but the litigation not only in obstetrics, but in health in U.S. is very negative impact. Marlene, your work is inspiring, incredible. There have been several points in this 
conversation alone where I have actually started to tear up just listening to how inspired you've been in your work. What's next for you? Oh, there is so much next. <laughs> Tell me, I'm excited so, to hear. So I retired from the UN three years ago because of retirement age was at that time 62. Then I came back to Kenya, the country where we have, with my family, we have lived and worked in the 80s and the 90s, when I came as a young researcher, and at that time, my research question was, can women be infected with HIV? That was in 85, and we didn't know. So to address that question, I worked with a fantastic team at the University of Nairobi. But for my daily work, uh, to do the research, I was in a very busy maternity with about 80 to 100 deliveries a day. In Nairobi. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, public sector, low-income groups. So I was there for five years. And the good thing was, this maternity also has a midwifery school and a training facility. So there was a shortage of staff, material, equipment. It needs to be refurbished. I introduced the first ultrasound in Kenya in 1985. In eighty six, that I managed to buy from some charity and philanthropy. So basically now 30 years later, back in Kenya, I'm working now in another environment at the Aga Khan University. From there, we are trying now to team up with public health facility, this big maternity, Pumani Maternity Hospital, public facility with still a lot of patients. Improved indicators. In those days, we had like two stillbirths every day. We had a huge maternal mortality rate. This is now better, but the needs are still, I mean, tremendous. So my dream is to really to work from wherever I am with the public health sector, with this maternity for the women come there. But it's also midwifery school, a teaching school, and a referral center. So upgrading these facilities and standards of care and teaching and training, capacity building, will have an impact not only on that physical space, but on the whole of Nairobi, Kenya, and even East Africa. So I'm really hoping that we can find enough interest to build that initiative. So that's my next dream in life. What are your greatest moments of joy? Can you think of, like for me, I know when I was attending births full-time, it was that moment where the mother would talk to her baby for the first time and you just get that high-pitched voice from the mother and I would always for me something about that was just so affirming and delightful what are some of those moments for you yeah same one so (laughs) it's really you know the delivery remains a moment of joy most of the time and mainly when you have this patients who had a lot of problems before with miscarriage or stillbirth or complicated. And then you help them and they get this healthy baby. It's even kind of more intense than in in other situations. This was kind of the moments of joy. Now later, it's very nice because like in Kenya, but also in Europe, I meet so many women or men who are telling me, Look, this guy now, 12 or 20, you know, you were the one who who helped us to deliver. And so I see all these 
babies or the children or these adults have already the children of these children coming to deliver. So this is great. Another great moments are also I invested a lot in capacity building and in mentoring young doctors, but also in research. And I have done a lot of capacity building and master research, and some of them I had the privilege to guide them, be it clinical or public health research or whatever, in their PhD work. And then it's great when, for example, I was in recently Burkina Faso, and I meet as the Minister of Health as my former PhD student. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, the, many of them made their way, they are in research or in academia, or they are in politics, or they are important people in their society. And even better, when they also built and mentor young people. I'm now so happy that I was just given by UNESCO a position as UNESCO chair for the next generation of young leaders in science and health in education and in gender. So investing in leadership in the next generations. And that's what I hope to be able to continue to do for another, I don't know, five or 10 years. But that's one of the great moments, I would say. I know the amount of work it takes to write even one research paper, let alone 500, and the amount of dedication and time it takes and vulnerability to expose yourself to be in politics and at so many levels and junctions of your work, I can only imagine the time that you, but also your family have invested. And I can only extend my gratitude for the work you're doing because it truly is so far reaching and transformative. So on behalf of myself as a midwife and a physician and the women you're serving. Thank you so much. And I hope we can have you back on to talk more because this is such an important and timely issue. And I think that given the impact that we know on cesarean, not just on maternal well-being, but on the next generations, this work is so significant in public health. So thank you so much for everything you do for us. Oh, very welcome, Aviva. And this is not work. I didn't write these 500 papers on my own, of course. I of mean, course. not alone. <laughs> it's always group work and teamwork and so on. And I'm very happy to share this experience with you. And it's my honor to talk to you. And yeah, let's have a next conversation. Uh, my pleasure. I look forward to that. And we'll post links to the Lancet articles below the podcast. Are you open to, if someone wanted to reach out to you, how might they do that if that would be okay? Maybe best my email address. Okay, we'll post that below as well for folks who want to reach out to you academically or around policy work to be able to do that. Let's have another conversation and keep this going because I feel like there's so many ways that listeners can make an impact in their own lives, in their communities. And we have a lot of healthcare professionals that listen as well. So as much as we can amplify what you're doing, we'd really love to do that. Excellent. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much and a very good day. You too. I'm here now a very nice safari park with my team because we have our team building meeting with my department. So now it's six o'clock. We are going to enjoy our evening meal. 
Beautiful. I'm here in Western Massachusetts with 10 inches of snow on the ground in the morning. Oh my God. <laughs> yep. Really? Yes. I'll send you a picture. Oh. It's beautiful, but it's the opposite of safari conditions. I can see now elephants and I can see one rhino, few buffaloes, zebras. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, in the Mount Kenya. That's amazing. So yeah, it's beautiful. That's okay. amazing. Enjoy. And you. Bye. Thank you listeners so much for joining me today on Natural MD Radio. I hope that you've been as inspired by hearing Dr. Temmerman's story and about the incredible work that she's doing as I am. You know, one of the questions that I get a lot from listeners is, Dr. Ram, how do I know what are the best supplements to pick? And I always want to answer all of your questions because I know that it's very hard to actually make those choices. I can remember some years ago, my husband had to go into a Whole Foods and get some magnesium for one of our daughters for sleep. She was off in a dorm, new school, new state. And he went in and he stood in front of the supplement aisle in Whole Foods and he actually called me on the phone and said, I have no idea which one to pick. So I you know, told him a few good brands. And I know that's really, really overwhelming. But the thing is, I don't like to sell supplements. And here's why. I don't want you to ever, ever, ever wonder that the information I give you is in any way in conflict with the fact that I could be selling supplements and benefiting financially from the supplements that I'm teaching you about. So I have chosen to do something a little bit unique. I make the supplement store available to you similar to the one that my patients get to use through a company called Fullscripts. And you can get access to the supplement store by going to my website at avivaram.com, looking on the navigation tabs under more for you, and you'll see something that says supplement store. But here's the cool thing that sets my business aside from I think any other online health professional out there. I don't take a single penny from the supplement sales. In fact, even the formulas that I've created for Herb Farm are available to you through the Fullscripts supplement store. My husband and I have started a not-for-profit arm of our business called Dharma Moms. And at this point, we're still in the process of incorporation. But we started this process in 2018 where All people who use the supplement store get 20% off the price. So that's 20% off the price that you would get it anywhere else online or in a store. But the wholesale cost that the company has available is 35%. So there's a 15% difference. And what I like to say is that your difference is making a difference. If you use the full script supplement store, which you can use for any of your supplement or herbal needs, and your friends can use it, your families can use it. If you're a practitioner, your clients or patients can use it. Every single penny, including I pay for the cost of this podcast to tell you about it. We don't take any advertising. Every penny goes into supporting causes that are elevating the access to services of women in need, in childbearing, both in the highest risk countries in the world with the highest rates of maternal mortality, but also now in the United States. So as of 
the beginning of 2018, so we're closing out 2018 with this episode of the podcast, we've raised about $20,000 thanks to your difference making a difference. And every single penny of that has gone to organizations like Good Birth Foundation, supporting the development of high standards for midwives and birthing centers in places like Mexico, Haiti, and Uganda, to Mama Toto, an organization providing an incredible array of services to women of color in at-need socioeconomic groups for prenatal, birth, doula, and postpartum care, and also to a doula service in Brooklyn, New York, for scholarships for women of color who want to become doulas and serve women of color at need in their communities. So if you'd like to be part of making this difference with me and you do purchase supplements, one way you can do it and get a discount for yourself, which is always 20% off, know which companies I'm using in my family and my medical practice and have 100% of profits go to helping moms in need around the world, including in the United States and some of the most high-risk, high-need communities, have healthier, safer, better, more supported births and postpartum experiences with midwives, with doulas, please go over to my website and check out the Replenish Formulary. Thank you so much and stay tuned for our next episode, which will be the final installment in the four-part series on does detoxification really work? What is it? And we're going to talk about herbs that support your body's natural detoxification processes. See you next time. And thank you so much for joining me on Natural MD Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.